What a tender, uh, precious moment to share with you all. And I noticed that my wife and our son Tucker have left. He takes after me. He's a little chatty at times. Um, <laughs> but to be in this place and to um, know that Tucker will grow up in this place with many of you as his teachers and mentors and guides means a lot to me. Even though we are physically in this sanctuary this morning, I invite you to join me at the edge of a 110-foot cliff, 1,200 miles east of Minneapolis. So we're in the Adirondacks. It's an early summer morning, and the reds and the oranges of the sunrise still linger. There's a cool, gentle breeze that smells of pine, new beginnings, and dew. Parker Palmer, author and educator, is at the edge of this cliff as well. And it's his unfolding story that we are witnessing at this cliffside. In his own words, I've signed up for an outward bound course and now face what I fear the most, rappelling down a cliff. The instructor ties a very thin rope to my waist that looks ill-kempt and seems to be unraveling, and he, and he tells me to start rappelling. What? I say, just go, says the instructor. And so I go slamming into the cliff. I don't think you've quite got it, says the instructor. Helpful advice. The only way to do this is to lean back as far as you can so that your weight will be on your feet. I know it's counterintuitive, but it's all that works. I knew he was wrong, of course. The trick was to hug the mountain, to stay as close to the rock as possible. So I tried it again my way and slammed into the cliff wall again. The instructor gave me time to collect my wits, then said, lean way back and take the next step. Wonder of wonders, it worked writes Parker Palmer. I leaned back into the empty space, eyes on the heavens, slowly gaining confidence with each step. Things were fine until the instructor told me to stop and see what was below my feet. I saw I was approaching a deep hole in the face of the rock, and to get down, I would have to go around this hole. I knew for certain that attempting to do this would lead directly to my death. (laughs) So I froze, says Parker Palmer. I froze, paralyzed with fear. The instructor shouted down these helpful words to me. Parker, is anything wrong? (laughs) And in a high, squeaky voice, I said, I don't want to talk about it. then it's time you learned the outward bound motto. Great, Parker thinks to himself. I'm about to die, and I'm going to get a motto. The instructor shouts ten words, though, that I hope to never forget, words whose impact and meaning I can still feel today. If you can't get out of it, get into it. If you can't get out of it, get into it. These compelling words bypassed my mind and suddenly animated my flesh. My arms and legs started moving because it was clear that no helicopter was going to come. 
No one was going to pull me back up the cliff, and there was no parachute that I had packed as a backup in my backpack. In minutes, Parker Palmer writes, I was down. The lesson was simple and profound. Sometimes there is no way out of a dilemma except to get into it and then through it. Indeed, sometimes surrender, sometimes leaning back and letting go of certainty, listening to wisdom that comes from outside our own hamster wheel mind, that can be the way out. When we're at the end of that narrow, seemingly frayed rope, letting go, leaning back, surrendering can be the way to new life. We know this. In any 12-step program, the first step is to surrender, to admit powerlessness over that which enslaves. By letting go of the illusion of control, we can be more honest about the choices we do have control over. And yet, surrendering is not necessarily easy or even popular in our culture. As Kay Warren, the author of Dangerous Surrender, notes, surrender can be a dirty word to many of us. Those of us who see themselves as strong and capable, it's not a very attractive word, surrender. Perhaps this is why Parker Palmer, when asked halfway down the cliff, is anything wrong? He responds, I don't want to talk about it. And if you've been there, if you've been in that place, I've been in that place where the first response is, wow, I'm in a boatload of trouble but I'm fine, but not really. I don't want to talk about it. For that one last moment, Parker Palmer can pretend that he is strong, that everything is fine, but that leaves him stuck on the cliffside. Surrendering is the way out. If you can't get out of it, get into it. Surrender into it. For Kay Warren, the author I mentioned a moment ago, surrendering is not easy. For her, it means letting go of what she calls the kingdom of me, that realm in which all decisions, all, everything going on, the world itself really, revolve around her needs and her ego. And just a quick little detour here to last week. Last week, you remember that I said, those of you who were here, that were here, listening is hard. And hard, H-A-R-D, is an acronym. Listening, real listening, takes heart and attention, relationship, dedication. I hope you remember that. And as you might imagine, it's difficult to be a really good listener if you're living just in the kingdom of me. Just a connection there. This is Kay Kay Warren's uh, story continuing here. She was, as she describes it, a content kingdom of me Christian, living a relatively shallow faith until one day she read about the HIV and AIDS pandemic in Africa and around the world. As she learned more, her prejudice and misunderstanding about the disease and the people that it infected slowly faded. She began to understand God as she understood God, that God was speaking to her if she would only listen. God was challenging her to let go of the keys to the kingdom of K, that little kingdom of me, and surrender into a deeper faith to say yes to God's kingdom, to intentionally serve others, and to do something about this global AIDS crisis. The point 
The point I'm trying to make, whatever your faith is, whatever it is you believe, these stories point to something powerful and true about being alive. They are stories of listening, of trusting, of letting go, of having faith, a certain kind of faith, whether or not you believe in goddess or God or the big whatever. This idea of surrendering is personal for me as well. And Philip Booth's poem, that second reading we heard this morning, that poem has been a North Star in my life for a while now. As you know, my wife and I have a nine-month-old son. And parenthood has taught us a lot about listening, about surrendering, about loving. When Tucker was born, I had a handful of these shiny expectations of what it would be like. Except after he was born, nothing was as I thought it would be. Is this familiar to other, <laughs> other parents? For, for just a moment, after it was an easy uh, uh, pregnancy, and so I thought, oh, easy baby. For a moment, like Parker Palmer, after that first month of being in the world with Tucker there, I pretended things were fine and that I didn't want to talk about it. But that left me and my family stuck. So like many parents, I surrendered. My wife and I surrendered to getting up at 11 and 1 and 3 and 5 in the morning to change and to be with our fussy baby. I surrendered to the fact that if I was holding Tucker in those early days, I was probably bouncing up and down in the house or I was rocking in place with a hairdryer on next to me because the hairdryer white noise was the only thing that worked. I'm not kidding. We had the hairdryer on all the time for him, for him to go to sleep. And I surrendered to the fact that he would spit out and continues to spit out every single pacifier we have tried to put in his mouth. So it's been nine months since his birth, and my wife and I are still learning on a daily basis to let go of our assumptions and expectations of what we thought Tucker and parenting would be like and try to embrace what it actually is like. And this isn't just about parenting. This is life, too. We have all these expectations and assumptions about what our life should be like, when in fact it's probably something very different. And if we embrace what it is, we can do something. In short, my family and I are doing our best not to get stuck in the monkey trap. Remember that first reading? As author George Ricker explains about this story, the monkey trap works because the monkeys, by evolution, programmed by evolution, are going to grab the food that's in there. They don't understand that the price of the food is their, is their life, is their survival. It's not that the monkey is stupid. It's just that letting go doesn't occur to it. The monkey is caught by its own rigid values, not by the physical structure of the trap. We might think that we as human beings are the more evolved species, but I can promise you we get caught in monkey traps all the time. Given the reality of this monkey trap world, where our values and expectations can so easily enslave us, is it any wonder that some form of surrender or letting go is a part of every faith tradition? Buddhists understand attachment to be a major source of suffering, so they strive to let go of their attachment, to surrender those attachments. 
The heart of Islam is submission, to surrender or submit your will to Allah and the teachings of his prophet. Many Christians seek to surrender their will to God's will or to submit their will to the ethical teachings of Jesus. And religious humanists and agnostics recognize the power of surrendering to a mystery or just the complexity of the cosmos that is beyond our human understanding. That being said, there are some notions and ideas of surrender that are unhealthy and flawed. I'm not advocating surrendering to an abusive relationship or some other life-denying or dehumanizing force. I am advocating surrendering in a way that is life-giving, like the snake that sheds its skin so that it might grow. It's scary to shed our ego, our facade of strength, to get beyond the, everything's fine, I don't need to talk about it. But holding too tightly to something is life-depleting. And so I ask you this morning, what cliff are you stuck on unable to lean back and make your way down from. How well is the kingdom of me serving you? What do you have tightly clenched in your hands or in your heart that is preventing you from surviving and even thriving? These are important questions for each of us as individuals to wrestle with, but when surrendering and letting go is considered in the context of a faith community like this one, within that wider circle, we can see its true power. Let me explain. I'm I'm thinking specifically of an experience I had over three years ago when I worked at All Souls Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. That poem, the first lesson poem, was read during the Sunday service just days after the sudden death of Sienna, a three-year-old daughter of the minister of that church. As you can imagine, as some of you know, the congregation and the family was reeling from this loss. And when the Reverend John Wolfe, the minister emeritus, got into the pulpit that day and spoke to us. He reminded us. He said, the death of three-year-old Sienna makes no sense. It is beyond understanding. There is no word that can be spoken or that anyone knows how to speak that can comfort these parents. Then he read part of Philip Booth's poem. Believe me, When you tire on the long thrash to your island, lie up and survive. Remember when fear cramps your heart what I told you. Lie gently and wide to the light your stars. Lie back and the sea will hold you. Then John Wolfe looked out at all of us in the congregation and he said to us, We are like the sea. We will be here to hold Sienna's parents, to hold one another, no matter what. It has stuck with me. And I know how courageous and profound an act of faith it is to surrender, 
to let go, to trust, to fall back, to be held. If you can't get out of it, get into it. And I know that it is an equally profound act of faith to hold or to listen to or to be with someone who has surrendered. When we surrender, when we are witnesses to one another's surrendering, we move from the kingdom of me, that self-referential place, to the kingdom of we, that place that understands surrender as part of the human experience, the thread that connects each one of us. The bottom line when it comes to surrendering is that it's not a question of if, but a question of when. Life with all of its beauty and joy and wonder is also full of disaster and disappointment. We get stuck. Fear cramps our heart. Children and loved ones die. The economy collapses. National, global, even our family problems seem so insurmountable, overwhelming. When these moments hit as they will, if we are to survive, we must surrender. When we are at the end of the strength we possess and words no longer comfort the church, this church, at its best, is a place where we lie back and are held in the embrace of this ocean. At its best, the church helps us surrender our egos, facades, false gods, and invites us to deeper life. Sunday after Sunday, we show up. It doesn't matter who is preaching or what the topic is, we show up because sometimes we need the ocean and sometimes we are the ocean. And as I say these words, as I was writing this, I cannot help but think of John Addington, a long-time member of this church, a greeter at this church for decades. All of you probably interact with him, whether you know it or not, coming into this church. John, Sunday after Sunday, decade after decade, showed up. He was a part of that ocean. He greeted you with a warm smile and embrace, a hello. He was a piece of that ocean. We show up. It doesn't matter who's preaching. It doesn't matter what the topic is. We show up because sometimes we need the ocean and sometimes we are the ocean. This is what a faith community can be, a place where we can lie back and surrender into the arms of love, a place where we can be the arms of love. And ultimately, the church is a place that returns us to the world, a member of the kingdom of we, ready to bless and to serve and to be of service. May it be so. And amen.